Among the rubble in the aftermath of the Twin Towers destruction 15 years ago was the language employed by commentators and politicians meant to capture the height and length and breadth and depth of the catastrophe. No words I heard then on news reports were truly adequate for the occasion. A variety of commentators likened it to one more circle of Dante's hell, a revisited Mount St. Helens, a nuclear winter, the edge of a volcano. One said it was bigger than the Hindenburg, bigger than Titanic. Pearl Harbor was invoked repeatedly. But I observed that our language had become so impoverished in this age of hyperbole, vapid popular culture had so overwhelmed our consciousness at that time that we lacked an adequate vocabulary to express the size of our experience. It occurred to me that one of the reasons so many people showed up at church for so many worship services in the days and months following was to help fill this language void. Having no words of their own, hearing and reading no words large enough on screens and in print, many hundreds and thousands sought out those places that might have at least some words that could give expression to their anguish and battered hope. So, as usual, we relied mightily on the ancient poetry of psalms and the proclamation of prophets and the testimony of disciples to give voice to the deep and painful groans of our souls. And it helped. And I'm certain that many who stepped into a church for the first time in a long time in those days and months found a word or two that spoke for them. Still, you know, words can't take us the whole distance. They can only go so far into the depth of our experience. I was acutely aware of this as I considered what I would say and preach on the Sunday following 9-11, and I imagined all of the possible scenarios around the nation all the ministers stepping into their place before expectant congregations, attempting to find words that could reach the deep places in the hearts of their anxious listeners, and I recognized it was a nearly impossible task. I felt small by way of comparison. And I wondered how I could get out of my own way so that something truthful could be communicated, something authentic, something that wasn't simply cleverly disguised religious hyperbole that went down relievedly, even delightfully easy in the morning, yet failed to sate the really deep and painful hungry, hunger by mid-afternoon. Well, you know, after brooding about this, I wrote something down on the Saturday following that now infamous Tuesday, but felt mostly inadequate to the task. I went to bed in a state of restless anxiety and awoke with a start around 2 a.m. 
And I had in my mind a few simple words, three short phrases. I got up and jotted them down and tore up what I had written. And it seemed to me these short declarations were things we might have known at one time or thought we knew prior to the disorienting tragedy. I remember the disorientation especially, as though we had all been knocked unconscious, awakening to an utterly reordered world. Those of you that were in the city then, I think, will recall, you'll recall this as a nearly physical memory, this disorientation. It was embedded in your body. And you know, the words that were given to me in my sleep felt a bit like uh, life preservers thrown out to a struggling man. And they were very simple. Although, as we often affirm in a space like this, simple should not be equated with shallow. Instead, think of simple as foundational, bedrock, as essential to life, as the ground we walk upon or the air we breathe. So three simple things came to mind in the middle of a restless night, each two words long. Three simple things, three essentials of faith. I suggested folks jot them down on a slip of paper and stick them to a refrigerator or to a bathroom mirror or a computer screen where they could be seen every day. An essential catechism of the Christian faith. Not as some esoteric system of religious mumbo-jumbo, but as the truest, most important things we know. The first two words I had were these. God is. Like I said, very simple. But you know, when our lives are struck hard by desperate crisis, our usual supports are rent asunder. Things we've taken so for granted, matters we've assigned principal importance, are exposed as less significant than we thought. All of a sudden, life seems out of control, chaotic. We lose our bearings, become disoriented. That disorientation surely overwhelmed us 15 years ago. It was devilishly hard to concentrate in those next days. You remember that? To maintain a sense of proportion and balance. It seemed as though the world we thought we knew just a week earlier had shifted out of focus. Did it ever really exist at all? If you've ever been in a sizable earthquake, you know of an instinctual terror of the loss of the very ground you walk upon. But that lasts only for a few seconds. The sigh of blessed relief when the tremors pass indicates that everything is as it once was. But what happens when you think everything isn't as it once was? What then? Then we shift our attention to a ground that lies even deeper. And the scriptures of our tradition help us here. Indeed, that is their essential purpose. 
They provide an ancient library of the recurring human discovery that God is. That behind all things lays a fundamental order. That's why people flocked to churches back then. They needed to remember something they thought maybe they once knew. And so the scriptures were opened and people found resonance with ancient poetry like you heard earlier. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And you know, friends, we have an instinct for knowing that these words were forged in the crucible of great human adversity and tragedy. They came out of tragedy. For millennia, people confronted with great crises have seen behind and beneath their experience a more fundamental order, and others who then followed learned the wisdom of their forebears, that God is. My second words were these. God loves. You know, something that struck me powerfully in those days, that when stripped of our mundane preoccupations, we quickly identify the importance of our relationships with one another, especially those closest relationships that give shape and meaning to our lives. Asking the congregation back then for a show of hands of those who called the people they loved in the days between Tuesday and Sunday simply to touch base, simply to say, I love you, nearly every hand in the house went up. Some of my most deeply affective moments came on that Tuesday in the few minutes of conversation I had with my son and daughter, each away at a college in a different city. Very short conversations. Each one ended by my saying, I love you. And they're saying back, I love you too, Dad. These simple words spoke with a depth and eloquence that even Shakespeare could not improve upon. Well, why is this? Why is this our instinct as opposed to some other behavior? It would seem that this deep connection, this profound instinct for loving relationship is among the most elemental human characteristics. We are evidently designed for loving relationships. Now, that we are so poor at their execution provides material for a lifetime of sermons. But in the midst of crisis, you know, in the midst of crisis, we need to simply acknowledge this truth to see it clearly. Finally, maybe for the very first time. Is it the stock portfolio? Is it the career? Is it the house? Is it anything else at all that fundamentally matters? There's a famous phrase in John's Gospel that goes like this. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that same son 
said that the primary mission in life is the sentence we have up in our mosaics above the altar. To love God with everything we've got and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love is the essential life energy. It is the essential verb in a meaningful life. And as our tradition instructs, this is no sentimental matter. This is not a hallmark card matter. This holy love is acquainted with grief and sorrow. It knows desperation and loss. Didn't Jesus cry out on the cross in a lonely despair, seemingly abandoned by his friends, and even for a moment, even by God himself? And yet this then led to my last words. God saves. In the face of evident disaster, God wrought victory. Do you remember that every Sunday is in fact a mini-resurrection celebration? Every Sunday. Do you know that what we're doing here today flies in the face of what terrorists intend? Their intention is to strip us of a confident hope. That's what the power of hate wants to accomplish and why we must never succumb to it. Hate is a destroyer. Love builds up. Hate breeds on fear. Love feeds on hope. If we have even a smidgen of hope, we have been touched by grace. Hope is the engine of God's salvation. Hope is the fruitful acknowledgement that God is and God loves. Hope instructs that love is stronger even than death itself. That's the deep, deepest truth at the heart of authentic Christian faith. Hope led Paul to ask, well, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will, hardship, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. It's a breathtaking, nearly impossible bit of theology to take on. That is God's salvation an eternal, loving embrace that cannot be severed. Cannot. There are a few really large questions we cannot adequately answer in this life. Chief among them is why suffering and evil exist in our world. But, surprisingly, shockingly, thankfully, smack in the middle of life's disorienting circumstance, Three life preservers are discovered right close at hand. 
God is. God loves. God saves. And to that I add, Amen.